Hello, mainly fans around the world. Jambo to our listeners in Kenya and Sawatsi to those of you listening in Thailand. This time of year, you might be headed to Grandma's house, so this episode will make for a perfect accompaniment to your travels. It turns out that famous poem put to music was originally penned by a prominent New England activist on behalf of Native Americans and enslaved people and an opponent of U.S. military expansion. Although Lydia Mariah Child was born in Massachusetts, she lived with her older sister in Norwich, Maine, studying to be a teacher. So she's fair game for this podcast for anyone keeping score at home. She is also a towering figure in 19th century American literature and political activism. She was also a pioneering children's author, and as mentioned, her most enduring work would be a song for young people. But what was the relationship between these very different aspects of Child's work? And what does thinking about Thanksgiving and other holiday writing alongside work about human rights and what it means to be an American change about how we see either. Today's guest makes it look easy, but tackling these issues is not child's play. So let's do this. My guest today is Lydia Moland, professor of philosophy at Colby College. Lydia, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. You have written a uh, exciting new book about Lydia Mariah Child. Of all of the really important figures in American history that I can think of who made solid substantial contributions to American politics and society who are remembered for different aspects of their career than they initially intended. Lydia Maria Child, to me, stands out as one of the biggest examples. Uh, And the only equivalent that I can think of is maybe Helen Keller, who is this radical socialist activist and anti-war protester who is now remembered as the plucky, uh, deaf and blind person who could, which of course she yes. was, but that was not at all what she considered to be her her most essential contributions to, uh, to American life in the early 20th century. So Lydia Maria Child, to me at least, seems like one of those, because most people I meet don't know anything about her. The one thing they do know is over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. <laughs> so yes. my opening question to you is, well, first of all is, can you think of anybody else who, who fits that bill for you? Hmm. That is a great question. I don't think anybody else comes to mind, but Helen Keller is a wonderful uh, example of a similar kind of, yeah, just disjunct between what the person in question accomplished and what would have been most important to her to be remembered by and what she's actually remembered by. I would say the thing about child is that 
even though almost every school child can recite over the river and through the wood, almost nobody knows who wrote it. So she even yeah. is a little bit behind Helen Keller as far as household name recognition goes. A lot behind, actually. It's true. That is also a really good point. Yeah. The irony that she spent half a century fighting for racial justice and really sacrificed her life and her career and friendships and almost her marriage and almost anything that was of value to her uh, to fight racial injustice, but is known for one of the most sentimental poems that is famous in America. The irony of that would not have been lost on her. So that leads me to my, my next question, which is, was this already the case in her own lifetime? And just for our listeners who may understandably not be be up on all the details of Lydia Mariah Child's life, first of all, just what was her, what years was she alive in? Yeah, so she was born in 1802 in Medford, Massachusetts, and she lived a good long life. She died in 1880, so her life really spans the American 19th century. By the time she was in her early 20s, she was already an author. She wrote a very successful novel very early in her life and then built on that success by becoming a beloved children's author. She edited one of the first periodicals for children in the United States called the Juvenile Miscellany. And then in 1829, she published something called The Frugal Housewife, which was one of the United States' first self-help books and one of our most influential cookbooks. But then in 1830, she met William Lloyd Garrison, who was a leader of the white abolitionist movement. The abolitionism had its very firm foundation in the Black community in Boston and Philadelphia and other cities. But William Lloyd Garrison was a white man who had as his mission to try to convert other white people to the abolitionist cause. And I'll just say briefly that to be an abolitionist in the 1830s was absolutely to be a radical. The historian Kelly Carter Jackson says that it was like being a communist in the 1950s. It was absolutely a social taboo. It was considered way too extreme uh, by almost everyone, all white Northerners. But Child was converted by William Lloyd Garrison's arguments and decided that she could not live her life the same way again. She spent the next three years researching and writing a book that she published in 1833 called An Appeal for That Class of Americans Called Africans. It was a book-length denunciation of slavery. There was a chapter on economics, on politics, on history. And then in its last chapter, she really wheels her cannon around and points it at her own hometown and says there is no way that slavery could exist as it does in the South without the complicity of Northerners. And she talks about Northerners who make their fortunes off of the slave trade. She talks about Northerners, Northern politicians compromising with Southern politicians for their own political gain. And then she talks about Northern racism, and she talks about hearing little boys shouting racial epithets in the street and white parishioners not allowing black people into their churches or into their schools or into their jobs. And she says slavery would never survive as the evil that it is without Northern complicity. That is fascinating also, that she did that. I mean, that, that was very much a divide within a lot of white Northern abolitionists, how much 
you know, because as you well know, but our, our many of our listeners do not, there was this already popular kind of genre of northern kind of anti-slavery, almost southern poverty porn, where they would they would sort of just reflect and ruminate on how, oh, well, our region doesn't have slavery and look how much better things are. And in the South, everything is dilapidated and dysfunctional and terrible. It's a real shame that these people just can't get their act together the way we have. Uh, and that's, that's right. often the general the general tone. And so the fact that she was so unsparing towards Massachusetts itself uh, yes. is is noteworthy. It is. And I, I think it's important. I've always lived in the North myself, and I think that this continues, that Northerners oh, yeah. tend to feel a certain kind of moral superiority, especially when it comes to race. And she is an early indication that that has never been true, and it certainly is still not true. I, I think it's also really important to remember that you could be against slavery as a white Northerner and still have absolutely no intention of treating Black people equally. So it was fine to say, okay, well, maybe they shouldn't be enslaved. But that did not mean that you thought that they were your equals and should be allowed into your churches or schools or professions. But she was convinced very early that slavery needed to end immediately without compensation to slaveholders and that all humans were equal, as our founding documents had said, but as very few white Americans were actually living. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm glad that you brought up, yeah, the the sort of Massachusetts continuity, because I think one of the great examples, Luis Day Hicks, who yes. was the big figurehead for Restore Our Alienated Rights, or ROAR, yes. against the, essentially, against integrating schools in Boston. They called it desegregation instead of integration, even though it's it's semantics. But yes. one of my, one of the lines that, that I read of hers that really stuck with me is she said, oh, well... I'm not a racist and I know some of my supporters are, but I can't help that. And she said, and I want to be clear, I think Jim Crow is terrible and I am horrified by George Wallace and I want nothing to do with that. She took real care to make sure that everybody knew that like, oh no, she was she was appalled by what was going on in the Jim Crow South. This was this was right. very much different. And obviously she's a good daughter of Massachusetts and it's, this is not what she's trying to do. Absolutely. No, I, I'm so glad you bring that up. That's such an important follow-up chapter in this story, as it were. And I had lived in Boston for a very long time before I heard that, even that history. So I think, again, it's the kind of thing that Bostonians don't usually like to associate with their own story. Well, and we see other reflections where uh, during uh, Indian removal, you know, the mass expulsion of, of Cherokees and other indigenous people from the American Southeast, uh, Massachusetts and other New England representatives opposed it. And they, you know, uh, yeah. admirably, they said, oh, this is uh, this is immoral and it's uh, it's cruel and it's also going to be used to expand slavery. But as the Southern representatives in Congress often pointed out, is that uh, New Englanders were opposed to Indian removal because they had already exterminated or removed the majority of Native yeah. Americans living in their own region. And at the same time, Massachusetts good uh, sort of activists were protesting on behalf of Cherokees, the Mashpee and other indigenous people in Massachusetts were protesting for their rights and saying, excuse me, excuse me, if we're going to talk about justice, could you please fulfill the promises of the, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that it made towards its native residents? And sometimes with some success. But 
Yeah, um, absolutely. It, it is, the cynic would say that one of the, the sort of a common Massachusetts trope is to point out a real, uh, although sort of perhaps modest difference between, say, Massachusetts and Georgia, and then expand or magnify that gap a lot and say, isn't it great people in Massachusetts who are protesting for for some sort of justice that you don't live in Georgia? And that's often the the the, the Massachusetts line. Yes, absolutely. And you're right that one of the things that was amazing about Child was how quickly, thoroughly, and consistently she fought against that. She had this, I, I sometimes call it fierce humility, by which I mean she was so willing to point her own moral lens at herself and her own culture and over and over to make the case that it takes a culture to sustain systematic evil. And there was no way that Southern slavery could have survived the way it did without the help of the North. And just on the topic of Native Americans, that was something that she learned very early on in Maine. So she lived in Norwalk, Maine as a teenager. And while she lived there, um, new evidence came to light of a massacre of Native Americans by British soldiers that had taken place in Norwalk about 100 years before that. Yeah, in 1724. I, exactly, right. And she never really stopped thinking about that incident. It made an enormous impression on her. She wrote about it more than once. And I think as a result, probably of that, got to know some of the Wabanaki in Norwich who lived along the Kennebec there, and uh, described them very, with you know, great respect as a people that had been grievously wronged and were trying to persist despite all of the disadvantages that were being enforced on them. And that meant that some of her earliest fiction had to do with Native Americans, including some of her earliest fiction for children. And that was a, it was a kind of cause of justice that she carried on caring a lot about um, for the rest of her life. Interesting. So my last thought on the lines of the, the, the radicalism here is that I, the, the example I often use with sort of my students is when framing abolitionists and how most people viewed them as the closest I can come up with is, is basically PETA uh, today or something similar where, you know, the mainstream press would say, well, these people are sentimental but their tactics are gross and they go way too far and they're they're clearly misguided in their priorities. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, I, I don't mean, of course, to draw a moral equivalent one to one of, you know, right. uh, of animals and enslaved people. But just in terms of sort of how the how the what you might, you know, for to use a, you know, a rough how the quote mainstream press might and, and sort of mainstream person on the street might yes. might view them i think that's a the, the closest approximation that i can think of anyway uh in terms of that um yeah that's really interesting and, and the, the thing that i would add to that is what was often also said about abolitionists which is said about those kinds of groups PETA or whatever is that if they would just stop rabble rousing if they would stop causing so much tension and dissent in society then we could actually get on with moral progress. And the the moment where I think that's most interesting in the case of the state of Maine is that that was an argument used when Maine applied for statehood for separation from Massachusetts. Um, part of what 
the problem became was that there was enough anti-slavery sentiment that once it became clear that Maine would be admitted as a free state only if slavery was allowed to expand in Missouri, some people did protest. Some people said, no, we don't want statehood in Maine if it means the expansion of slavery in other parts of the country. And there's a Maine politician who wrote this letter in which he essentially said, this is the fault of abolitionist rabble rousers. If people would just shut up about slavery, essentially, we wouldn't have these kinds of political problems. And that was the kind of argument that Lydia Mariah Child had to fight against her entire life, this idea that if you abolitionists would just be more moderate and be more quiet and be more polite, um, then we would listen to you. But she knew that was wrong. <laughs> right. I mean, we had hundreds of years already of history proving that that was wrong. But for her trying to decide how to articulate arguments in a way that was not morally compromised, but that did meet people where they were, it was one of the great challenges of, of her life and something she was really good at, actually. That's a really good point. And we should end on that by just saying, yeah, you're the oftentimes the pro-slavery folks would make this really kind of convoluted argument where they would say flat out, well, basically they would say it's the abolitionist fault that yeah. slavery doesn't end sooner uh, and that greater steps are not taken. And essentially, look what you made us do, which is a real novel approach to sort of causality. <laughs> but you see popping up both during slavery and segregation as well. And that, oh, if only these activists would just shut up, things would get better on their own. Yes. And um, you hear that argument today as well. Oh, no sure. Question. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Stop talking about the oppressions you face and they will go away on their own. Right. Um, that's how it works. Yes. By the time Child died, was her Thanksgiving poetry what she was already best known for? I don't think so. I'm not entirely sure what the history of the explosion of that poem in people's consciousness is. Okay. But I do think that by the time she died, she was very ambivalent about her own fame. So she had started her career clearly wanting a certain kind of literary fame, felt very, um, I would even say tortured sometimes by the fact that she had given so much of it up in the interest of this, of, of abolitionism. But by the end of her life, I think she was really plagued by a sense of failure because she lived long enough to see Reconstruction fail and to right. see that the kind of hopes that some abolitionists had had for the end of the war were being systematically dashed. And that what she had always predicted, which was that violence would never bring an end to racial prejudice. Racial prejudice would only end if white Americans were willing really to look into their hearts and change their hearts. That that was there was evidence of that everywhere in the United States in the post-war period. And she was also, I think, very suspicious. I know she was of what she called lion hunting. So she did not like it when people treated her like a celebrity. Um, she refused some attempts to make her more famous by anthologizing her or writing her biography. And when she died, she insisted on having a funeral that was so plain that when 
the couple of newspaper reporters who did manage to hear about it came, what they wrote about was how shocked they were that this transatlantically famous author had no flowers even at her funeral. And so I think there was a real ambivalence in her own mind about her career and the success of what she had accomplished, but also of what the value of a kind of hero worship was. And so I think there were lots of reasons that she faded from public consciousness pretty quickly, but I think that was one of them. If if you compare, for instance, when William Lloyd Garrison died just a couple of months earlier, 1,500 people came to his funeral, flags were flown at half mass up and down the East Coast, um, and there was a very quick effort by his children to enshrine him as an American hero. And I think um, Child both appreciated that people were doing that for Garrison and legitimately didn't want it for herself. Hmm. So there's, there's, there's a very complicated story there, I think, in her own psyche about why she's not better known. Yeah. Well, so I suppose thinking about the comparisons, I mean, Garrison as, and you, well, to be clear, you, you point out that child was, was unsparing in her criticism of, you know, her own, her own region and all the rest, but Garrison was, famously pugilistic and combative in his own lifetime he had like a 10-year feud with frederick douglas of all people like his former mentee uh you know garrison he didn't he'd never met a bridge that he couldn't burn with different allies (laughs) in his career and yes i think a, a lot of abolitionists when they were looking at the achievements that the movement undoubtedly had a role in in winning uh at the retrospectively praised him for it even though in in his lifetime he he made a lot of enemies and was probably hated by far more americans certainly white ones than than not but child i'm wondering when by the time she died in 1880 was she already being i guess to use the term sort of domesticated or in the sense of where people were loving her because they liked aspects of her work that they perceived as non-threatening. And to use kind of a, an imperfect analogy, you know, Martin Luther King, when he was assassinated in 1968, the majority of surveyed white Americans thought he was a dangerous radical. And of course, a, a sort of watered down version of Martin Luther King based on a selective reading of his one, I have a dream speech then became used to create a kind of secular saint that looks that is different from the the actual career of of Martin Luther King, the uh, the, the radical activist, right? And so again, to, it's an imperfect analogy, but so in Child's lifetime, was that already happening where she was just sort of a beloved children's author, sort of like Judy Bloom or something, and they and people weren't paying attention to her activism anymore? Well. That's an interesting question because a couple of the things that were written later in her life and immediately after her death did focus more on her activism. So Samuel May wrote something about her. Thomas Wentworth Higginson wrote something about her. And I think both of them mention her children's fiction, but not not as the main thing that she did. But certainly now, if you Google her, Almost everywhere you'll find her just described as a children's author or a cookbook author or, of course, the author of Over the River and Through the Wood. So I think that is true, that when people went back and looked at her life, they wanted to focus on the safe things, the sentimental things, 
um, the extraordinary things that she did as a woman for children. She also, I mean, she was incredibly prolific. She wrote a two-volume history of women, a three-volume history of religion. She wrote a book on aging. She wrote a book on parenting. I mean, she she was prolific. Yeah. But I, I do think that her anti-racist work and her abolitionist writing are still hard to read. They're mm -hmm. still very damning of what our history has been and the way that history continues to play forward. And I think Americans continue to be very uncomfortable with that. It strikes me as well, as you, as you point out, I, I mean, I knew she did a lot of, you know, shall we just say serious writing for adults, but I, I was not aware. I've never read her work on, you know, religion and aging. I mean, it strikes me as this is a great example of the the sort of gendered politics of who gets called a public intellectual. But yeah. like she was very much a public figure and I dare say a, you know, an educated intellectual one. Uh, and the fact that she's not classed as a public intellectual, I think, is pretty Yes, yes. and um, just to give you one other example, for a couple of years, she edited the National Anti-Slavery Standard, which was, you know, one of the first major political weekly newspapers of its kind, and she was the first woman to edit such a thing. And that was an incredibly difficult task for right. anyone. And for a woman who... It was still was not supposed to be, quote unquote, meddling in politics and economics and history. She was just never held back by any of that. But it would also be wrong to say that she didn't pay a price. Mm -hmm. And if I could just say one other thing following up on what you said a minute ago, that's absolutely right about her as opposed to Garrison. And Childs, as much as she was capable of articulating these scathing arguments, and as much as she was willing to pull the curtain back on sexual abuse and torture and family separation and all of these things that most white Northerners did not want to hear about slavery, she did try to meet people where they were. And she she wasn't a natural naturally combative person. She she was capable of making these arguments, but she didn't enjoy being combative. Mm. And that meant that she had a wrenching falling out with some of Garrison's allies in the 1840s when they wanted her, while she was editing the National Anti-Slavery Standard, to be completely uncompromising, not just with enslavers, but with any anti-slavery person who didn't toe exactly a particular line about how slavery should be fought. And she she refused to do that because she didn't think it would work. And she was essentially ousted from the movement and had to retreat for about 10 years. Yeah. So hers is really also this, a very typical activist story of someone who makes very firm allies in a cause and the cause splinters and you have people on the one hand who don't want to compromise at all, and people who think that some sort of more conciliatory take is important. Now, just to be clear, if there ever were a moral issue in our history where no compromise was permissible, it would have been slavery. And Child knew that. She'd been saying that for decades. But she also knew that articulating it in a way that was as uncompromising as some of Garrison's other allies wanted just wouldn't work. Right. If your goal is to win, 
then it's appropriate to have good tactics or strategy, which is, of course, always the paradox of this, of of activism on these issues. Definitely for me, the learning about the history of especially the abolitionist movement and their falling out, especially among white abolitionists in the Garrisonian years. For me, it's a real, a kind of usable story in the sense that I guess when I was earlier, uh, earlier in my studies, I guess I, I like to think that, well, people who had these noble ideas and causes that I supported, that they would be admirable, easy people to like, right? And that I would would find their tactics and their general demeanor to be basically just sort of easy to say, yes, I could place myself and see myself with them, right? As ahistoricals, that is. But when you look at Garrison and a lot of these other abolitionists, they were the most backbiting, absolute chores of human beings, these unpleasant people to each other, willing to burn bridges with people who they agreed with on 98% of issues. And just to give one example, Garrison said, well, voting is corrupted because it endorses slaveholding. So we shouldn't vote either. And, you know, some people said, what's the matter with you? Right. And so, and then they wouldn't talk with each other. And so my, you know, it's rare for me to openly pontificate for like the modern day, but to me anyway, that was always a good lesson that, oh, if you ever discourage yourself from being more involved in something you care about, because you just find some of the activists to be kind of annoying, or, you know, you don't like some of their tactics or their tone. Well, I mean, it will be hard for you to ever find a movement where you'll ever find everybody agreeable in it. And that, you know, So like that to me anyway, like there's no, there's no golden age or perfect movement of reason where everybody gets along and everybody's demeanor and methodology is going to be totally agreeable to you, whoever you are. Uh, And to me, that was very clarifying. Yeah. And that's going to be true even again in one of the most morally unambiguous causes in the history of humankind. And Linda Hirschman has written a wonderful book recently called The Color of Abolition that really gives a lot of pretty painful detail on all of that, um, including the racism among many abolitionists. Right. And, you know, Garrison's refusal to brook any dissent meant that he once said that Frederick Douglass, who had been born enslaved and escaped, didn't know the meaning of freedom. It's just preposterous. But it, it shows, I think, that people's egos get involved and... The other thing I think is important to remember is the external pressures on these people were extraordinary. They were ostracized. They were physically threatened. Their children suffered. Their marriages suffered. Their friendships suffered. Their families didn't want to associate with them anymore, et cetera. Some were murdered, like Owen Lovejoy. Elijah Parrish Lovejoy, that's right. Or Elijah Lovejoy, yes. Yes. Um, And so I think it's also important for us to remember that these were, as you say, very normal human beings with the same faults that many of us have. And they were also operating under incredible pressure. That was the fault of people trying to stop them. So a lot of the blame also falls. I say most of the blame falls on the forces that did everything they could to make their lives so miserable that they themselves were, I think you're right, often somewhat miserable to be around. Yes. I agreed. Yeah. And uh, well put. So for child thinking about the different aspects of her writing, did she view her writing for children and her sort of cultural contributions to be linked to her activism? I think she really did. And 
two things about that. One is that it's fascinating the way you can trace her own conversion to abolitionism through her children's writings. So her very earliest writings for children, um, she was obviously already committed to taking on both slavery and the treatment of Native Americans in her children's literature, because she, I think, correctly assumed that any child with any sense of justice would ask, what's going on here? So she tried to explain to her very young audiences why some people were being forced to arrive in the United States and some people were being forced to leave. But in her earliest fiction, she excuses both of those things, condemns, but also excuses as kind of unfortunate, but probably going away anyway. And then in her later, just a couple of years later, um, some children's fiction, she has definitely changed entirely, especially on the issue of Native Americans, and does not give any excuses for European settlers' behavior towards Native Americans. And that's the line that she took for the rest of her life. So the first thing I would say is that, yes, that comes across even in her, her political commitments and their evolution come across in her writing for children. But I'd also say that Child had a very capacious understanding of human nature and humans' role in not just the world, but the universe. And she was very convinced that humans were good and part of a whole that was determined by love. And so she definitely thought that fiction that made people feel happy and unified with each other and sympathetic would lead to better humans mm. and that that kind of fiction could move people's hearts in a way that argument could not even, could not always move their minds. So to give you one example, Frederick Douglass later in his life after child had already died, wrote about how he thought some of her writing, not just for children, but she wrote something called Letters from New York that was it was a kind of pioneering travel genre, as um, one of Child's biographers, Carolyn Karcher, has put it, that really tried to get people to see the beauty in things. And um, that included the beauty in machinery and in sewage systems and, you know, whatever huh. people were seeing in New York as a way to try to call humans to a more united sense of themselves with the world. And so I think when she wrote Over the River and Through the Wood, it was actually during this time I was just sketching out a minute ago when she had essentially again been ostracized from her community, this time by Garrisonians who thought she was too moderate. And part of the way she responded to that was by going back to writing children's fiction and poetry that was very sentimental and very nostalgic in the hope that that would still have an effect of making people better humans who then would be more likely to recognize an atrocity like slavery. So Child's most famous work is associated with Thanksgiving and the Thanksgiving holiday as established in the 19th century was very much a New England cultural product and it was pushed by, in particular, a group of New England activists with very political and, and, and clear cultural agendas in mind. And so this included Sarah Josepha Hale, who was the editor of 
Godie's lady book, uh, who also wrote the nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb, speaking of people and their most memorable <laughs> contributions. But she was an editor uh, associated with John Neal, one of the first sort of really public kind of Yankee boosters and writers. Uh, he was a Mainer, and we've covered him in an earlier episode. Uh, but Neil uh, and Sarah Josepha Hale pushed, uh, they petitioned President Lincoln to proclaim Thanksgiving uh, a national holiday. And part of their their hopes for this holiday was reflected in their other work about, you know, the anti-slavery and saying how different from how you framed child in how she criticized the Northeast, right? Uh, these writers and, basically said, look, New England is a good example, uh, an admirable example to the rest of the nation, and we should celebrate the so-called Pilgrim Fathers uh, and the first Thanksgiving as the this sort of cradle of religiosity and, and civic good uh, and all the rest that flows from that. So this is a, you know, a sort of roundabout way to get into this. But uh, I wanted to know, so did Child, who's to grandmother's house, her her poem, ended up being one of the, you know, one of the cultural centerpieces uh, of this new Thanksgiving. Uh, what was her relationship to these Yankee boosters? I don't know that she had any connection to the promotion of Thanksgiving as a holiday uh, at all. Not that I know of. I will say that she was a kind of Yankee culture booster in other ways. So okay. she definitely would say things about how the Northern self-sufficiency and frugality and some of these familiar New England stereotypical traits were the ones that should be promoted. And that was part of what she was trying to do in The Frugal Housewife in 1829. She was very clear that only that kind of self-sufficiency would sustain a democracy. Mm. So she was definitely concerned that part of the, well, the part of the product of slavery in the South was the emergence of an aristocracy. And she worried that that kind of aristocracy would also take root in the North. So, and I guess I'd also say that whatever kind of Northeastern boosterism she engaged in, was in her case always balanced by just a searing sense of the hypocrisy that had taken hold among New Englanders on topics like the ones we've already discussed. Um, so I would say it was another case in which she articulated an ideal that she did believe was at the foundation of either the United States or the Northeast, depending on which case you're talking about, and that needed to be either returned to or actually like implemented for the first time. Um, but I don't think that in her case, that took her to be involved in any kind of um, advocacy of Thanksgiving as uh, advertisement, as it were, for New England values. Okay. Okay. Uh, and that, that definitely makes sense given her, yeah, her <laughs> somewhat different approach and relationship uh, to yeah. it. Speaking of these relationships, she was a contemporary and she worked with Lucretia Mott and other prominent activists who were women who were heavily involved in the women's rights movement. And the women's rights movement in the 19th century was intimately bound up with the anti-slavery movement, of course, as you well know. Was she a, uh, I'm, I, I'm embarrassed to say that, you know, when I 
when I teach the the women's rights movement, she doesn't come up as much. And I'm not sure how was she, did she devote significant attentions to uh, women's rights as well in her public advocacy? She did, but she was always a little bit ambivalent um, at the beginning anyway. And Mm. she was very clear when there was another schism in the abolitionist movement in the 1830s over whether women should be allowed to participate and speak. She was always very clear that she was more comfortable advocating for the rights of others than she was for her own rights. So Uh she felt um, less empowered to try to fight for herself as a woman than she did empowered to fight for the end of slavery. But by the end of her life, and again, she was you know older than, not Lucretia Mott, I don't think, but uh, than some of the women who became more famous as women's rights advocates by the end of the century. And she was pretty, <laughs> she would go back and forth. Sometimes she would say, I'm just too tired to get involved in another, mm. um, another cause. But then she would say, I can't take my hands off the women question. And then, so what she did do, she wrote a series of very extensive articles in The Independent. Also, just as she had done with slavery, dis- dis- disassembling all of the bad arguments for keeping women down. So sort of mm. one by one, clearing this underbrush of bad arguments in the hopes that um, people would come to a sense of gender equality, again, by seeing that the reasons that they were uh, resisting it were unfounded. One of the more painful parts of that story is that she began supporting Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and there are some very enthusiastic and affectionate letters between the two of them. But once it became clear that Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were going to oppose the 15th Amendment, because the 15th Amendment was going to grant suffrage to Black men, but not to women. So So Stanton and Anthony decided to fight the 15th Amendment, and they did it on in, in horrifically racist ways. It was, this was not subtle, right? They were trying right. to scare white people from voting for that amendment by convincing them that black men were dangerous. Once it became clear that Stanton and Anthony were going down that road, Child wanted nothing more to do with them, stopped supporting them, stopped corresponding with them, as far as I know, and instead threw in her support with Lucy Stone and others who did support the 15th Amendment, but were um, also working for women's rights. So at the very end of her life, Child did publish in Lucy Stone's journal um, and continued to support that uh, way of promoting women's rights. Mm. But I, I wouldn't say that she was at the forefront of that struggle she was living essentially in isolation at that point. Her husband was very ill. She didn't travel much, so she wasn't at a lot of the big meetings. She would occasionally write letters to be read at those meetings because she she was clearly enough of a presence and enough of a had enough of a reputation that people wanted her participation as a way of granting respectability to what was still a very controversial movement, namely the movement for equality. Yeah. And I'm so it you indicated you hinted as much, but I just wanted to make clear for sure, because for even as late as 1880, not all women's rights activists necessarily had fully gotten on board with advocating for women's suffrage, since there were so many other issues at play, uh, women's rights within marriage, rights to divorce, on and on. And we'll, we'll talk about her marriage in a minute. 
But I'm assuming then that she was, in fact, a suffragist by 1880. She was in favor of women voting. I, you know, I'm a little unclear about that myself. Um, and that might just be that I, I don't have it at my fingertips. I think I'll say this child was, for most of her life, pretty ambivalent about politics. And for a while, she agreed with what you referenced earlier, which was William Lloyd Garrison's claim that politics was essentially all evil. And she said early in her life that she wouldn't vote if she could, because that would just be participating in a a system that was corrupt, essentially by definition. But I think later in her life, I do know that later in her life, she threatened her husband that if he didn't get home in time to vote, she would go and dress up like him and go and vote in his place. Um, and she did, in another case I can think of, sort of joke to a friend of hers, let's vote. And she knew that that, you know, women weren't allowed to vote for 40 years after she died. But, um, and that was the white women, of course. Um, right. Black women, it was much later, for the most part. But I think, so I think for her, it was, politics was always a dirty business. Voting did become, for her, more of a an acceptable way of expressing your citizenship and your, you know, endorsement of democracy. But I don't think she ever felt as passionate about the suffrage part as she did later in her life, just about Mm -hmm. the equality part. One of the formulations is interesting because you mentioned the dirty business. And of course, in the 19th century, there was this whole separate spheres ideology of women being inherently more virtuous. And so therefore they shouldn't be, uh, tainted by the grubby partisanship of, of politics. Uh, so went the argument. And there was a, a, a sort of turn of phrase by the opponents of woman voting. Uh, one of the arguments they used that wasn't just, you know, based on pretty like rank misogyny. And it was, it's the question is not what will women do with the vote, but what will the vote do to women? And the, that right. was the, uh, the fear. And so, uh, and there were, woman anti-suffrage you know activists who said yeah. as much one of them i believe francis cleveland the second wife of grover cleveland the president was a prominent one of them uh in the in the 1880s so i i wasn't sure if maybe she was one of the people who was an otherwise women's rights activist who had that kind of ambivalence well i think there was some of that ambivalence again more early in her life mm-hmm. um Certainly that kind of argument was made against women abolitionists that they needed to be the steadying, calm, pure, moral influence on their husbands who were apt to get, you know, caught up in the dirty business of politics. And so since abolition was thought of as a political issue and since it was a very dirty subject uh, that it was better for them not to be involved in it at all and she had no patience with that argument so i don't think that was her main that that wouldn't have been the way that she would have thought about the the women question anyway it reminds me i saw a political cartoon once and it was of you know the women politicians and it was from the mid-19th century and it's these women who are dressed in these very masculine suits and they're they're standing around a bar drinking whiskey and everything and it's meant to be i think one of them smoking a cigar and it's meant to be this absolute horror show and i remember seeing that cartoon and thinking they look really cool like yeah. i don't see the problem with this like, but we're gonna hang out I, with them yeah yeah exactly right i was like yeah i want to be friends with them they seem cool 
Um, but yeah, so there was a lot of that, that gender scaring. So about, so for women's rights activists and for 19th century women like child, marriage was both a personal and a, a political question, right? And the arrangements of their marriage. And so there was, I believe it was Lucy Stone who published her, who had this very public marriage ceremony where yeah. she and her husband very ostentatiously or so publicly uh, you know, she didn't obey him. She, they were going to yeah. be equals only. And this was a, it was around 1850. And this was a, a sort of a, a minor, a minor stir. So thinking of that, so Lydia Mariah Child. So for somebody, uh, a 19th century woman like Child, for her to get married meant that she was surrendering certain formal political rights. There was the doctrine of coverture was not to totally extinguished in which women were legally dependent on their husbands. In not all states could a married woman even have legal control over any money she earned at work. Yeah. Divorce was difficult to get. There was no legal category for rape within marriage, yeah. you know, the, all sorts of, of matters of, of that. So my question is, what was the, as in your studies, what have you found? What was the marriage like that the, the child's had? This is a, a, such a complicated and fascinating and ultimately, I think, good story. The good news about David Lee Child, who was her husband, is that he was more progressive than she was earlier than she was. So he, before he converted to abolitionism, was already really anti-slavery. And he was also more progressive on the topic of men and women's equality than she was when they got married. He also never, to my knowledge, tried to hold her back from anything. He always, he loved her mind. He loved how smart she was. He encouraged her to write in a journal that he ran about politics and economics and history. Uh, I've never seen any evidence that he tried to hold her back because of her gender. And it was really, it was a real love match. They adored each other. They made each other very happy. They shared all kinds of interests. They were allied in their activism. The bad news is that David Lee Child was a walking financial disaster. He <laughs> was um, he was an idealist. He was charming. This was a perfect combination for him to get mired in debt. He was very impractical. So when she met him, he was trying to run a newspaper. He had a law degree and he had borrowed heavily to get this paper started. And he promised her that it was about to turn a profit. It went belly up instead. And after that, he just, he just was kind of dragged along with him from one financial scheme to the next, all of which were ideologically admirable. I'll give you the most extreme example. He got the idea at a certain point that they could undermine the plantation sugarcane trade by learning how to farm sugar beets. So he uh, went to Europe, and, and other people thought this too. It wasn't just him, but yes. he, he, a company found him, sent him to France and Belgium to learn how to farm sugar beets. He came back. They moved from Boston to Northampton, Massachusetts. And engaged in about a four-year-long experiment of trying to grow sugar beets. Long story short, it failed and they went bankrupt. And one of the most painful things about that bankruptcy sale, and I have a reprint of the newspaper clipping that um, advertised it in my book, 
is that exactly as you say, he owned the legal rights to everything she ever earned, including the copyrights to her books. So on this list of all of the things that you could buy from the bankrupt David Lee Child, along with the forks and cows and wagons and whatever, were the titles of her books. And in part because of all of the tension around that, and also in part because he ended up taking over the National Anti-Slavery Standard when she decided she had to leave it, which essentially meant that he sided with her friends against her in the way the abolitionist movement should go. And I should say her former friends. Right. <laughs> they, they separated for about 10 years. And it, it, so this was this period in child's life where her marriage had essentially failed. She had lost many of her closest friendships over this question of how to conduct the abolitionist movement. And the abolitionist cause itself looked to be totally flailing. Um, the 1840s was a terrible decade for abolitionist activism. So anyway, long story short about them, um, she did not file for divorce, but she had to ask another male friend to be her legal guardian. So she separated her finances from her husband. She was not allowed to have control of her own finances. So she had to, again, get this friend to agree to manage her finances, take all of her money for her, which he did. And then after about 10 years of quasi-separation, they reunited and lived very happily together for the last couple of decades of their lives. And I say in the book that the first time I read her as a widow saying, those were the happiest years of our lives. I thought, I don't really believe that. I think that was rose-colored glasses by a nostalgic widow. But the more I read her letters and read other people's observations of them, I think he really changed. I think he he recognized that he was ruining her mental and physical health with his financial lack of control. And she told him that she wanted to control their finances and he said okay and he stuck to it and he died in her arms and it was a it was a beautiful last as i say a couple of decades of marriage hmm. that's fascinating and it does that just captures the sort of terrible bind and like you know legal impediments that yeah. a woman like her faced in yeah. marriage and it makes you understand i mean there's no good option right even if somebody wanted yeah. to stay single there were so many impediments to a single woman controlling yeah. her own affairs and that there was just in many ways, it was just so, I mean, come on, even in, uh, even in 21st century America with all the relative egalitarianism we have in society, just financially, it's often easier to be paired with somebody than not, but Absolutely. in, um, you know, for a, a single woman, it's a, it's a cold, cruel, landscape in many cases as the seneca falls declaration of sentiments lays out that there are so few avenues of employment for women and all the rest but uh, yeah if you get married to the wrong man even a nice man you can yes lose the rights to your own work exactly yeah very painful and i i should say too that they never had children they certainly wanted them um and something just didn't work. They never knew what. Uh, Reproductive science was not advanced enough to let them know that. Um, Sometimes child would say that she was glad they hadn't had children because I think it's obvious she could never have done what she did if she had also been caring for children. But it also, you know, pained her in many ways and was very difficult 
then later in her life when she didn't have uh, people, children to turn to, to support her. So if I may ask, turning to, to your background, you're a philosopher. You chose to write this, this book, which is, you know, very, uh, very appealing to the historical community. And so uh, what appealed to your philosopher brain to write this work of, of, you know, history? Yes, I had very happily been spending my career writing about German philosophy, uh, all men, of course. And around the time of the 2016 election, I decided that I wanted to turn to my own country and to women. And I had this vague memory that women had been important influences in the abolitionist movement. And then I had this intuition that to dedicate your life to eradicating a systematic evil, you would have to be thinking philosophically. You would have to have a sense of questions like what is justice, what is equality, what is freedom, and you would have to be good at arguing, which is something that for better or for worse, um, philosophers are, are good at doing. Yeah. And so I, I went looking for someone who had, who was a kind of philosophical thinker in the abolitionist movement and a woman. And I was incredibly lucky at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard's Radcliffe Institute that I happened across this a letter by child that electrified me and made me want to know everything I could about her. And not long after that, it just became painfully clear to me that she needed to be better known. And so I, as I said, there were these wonderful, two wonderful biographies of her in the 1990s. But I wanted to write one that was philosophical in the sense that I, I teach moral philosophy and I wanted to bring out the really tough moral philosophical questions that she faced and the way that she faced them. And I wanted to do it in a way that's personal in my own grappling with how to be a woman and a white woman in this moment in our country's history. And also to see what I could learn from the way someone like her had faced a moral emergency in her own life about how to live my own. Lydia Mariah Childs was not a, a sort of formal, explicit philosopher, but let's face it, you know, I mean, I'm I'm by no means an intellectual historian, but I'm very interested in, in my own work and trying to kind of suss out the arguments and ideas of ordinary people and how they put them yeah. into practice. And of course, child is by no means ordinary by any stretch of the imagination. You know, she's she's very much exceptional. That said, yes. how would you, uh, if you were going to sketch out the child philosophy, right? Like her philosophical approach and put it in conversation with, say, John Stuart Mill or other sort of yes. 19th century philosophers that Jeremy Bentham, uh, that people might have heard of, right? Yes. Uh, what would you say is the the hallmark, if you will? I, I know I'm asking you to be rather uh, broad brush and, you know, rather <laughs> talk showy. But yeah, <laughs> how would you sketch out the child philosophy? Yeah, and I have done some writing about this, just trying to parse that myself. So I have thought about it. And I, I will say, too, that child read philosophy. She had an older brother who was a professor at Harvard. She borrowed books from him. She talks about Kant. She talks about Hegel. She talks about Socrates. She was very well-versed in German romanticism, as you know, many people, including Ralph Waldo Emerson, 
were. Mm -hmm. Um, So she used philosophy. There's no question about that. As to her own philosophy, a couple of things come to mind. One is that she was not a utilitarian insofar as she thought that slavery, since it was clearly morally reprehensible, should be ended immediately, regardless of the consequences. Mm. So one of the things that abolitionists Garrison would say this kind of thing as well, would sometimes say was, duties are ours, events are God's. And that was a way of saying, the only thing that humans can control is doing the right thing. They can't control the circumstances. And so, and the, I'm sorry, the consequences. So what we should do is do our duties and let God or <laughs> just circumstances take care of the rest which is actually a very Kantian point of view. And I I don't know for a fact that Charles would have known enough about moral philosophy to uh, have had that influence her. So that's one thing I would say. Another thing is that she was very, one of her favorite modes of argumentation was to call on people's integrity and to try to get people to see that they were actually not living up to the principles that they professed to have. And I wouldn't say that there's a particular moral school that is associated with that, but I do think that that's a theme throughout much of philosophy is that if you say that you are committed to justice in certain ways, but your actions don't reflect that, then there's something fundamentally awry with your moral character. And part of what humans generally want is to be at one with themselves, not to have a tension between what they believe and the way they act. And so part of what child was always doing was diagnosing for people, essentially saying, I can tell that you can tell that something is really wrong here. So let's Mm. just look at the bad arguments that you're allowing to distract you from doing what you know in your heart of hearts, right? Um, And then get you to a point where you can let your actual beliefs shine through and guide your behavior. Um, so and would you can go all the way back to Socrates was, or something like that. Yeah. So was she targeting essentially the anti, anti-slavery people? The people who would never say, I'm pro-slavery, but anytime somebody would come up with an idea to address it, they'd say, no, that'll never work. And that's terrible. Sorry. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the phrases that she was really good at calling people out on was people would say, well, I'm as much against slavery as anyone else, Mm. but dot, dot, dot. And she would always encourage people, you know, stop with the but Um, and, and really ask yourself, if you think that slavery is wrong, what has to change? And if that means that white people have to give up some of their beliefs about themselves and some of their financial security, some of their social security, then they should do that. Interesting. My my last question about her, where she fell on issues. So thinking about, you know, responses and, and radicalism. So after the Civil War, would she have been, because I guess this is also thinking of my alignments, I'm a big fan of the approach advocated by Thaddeus Stevens, the representative mm. from Pennsylvania who said that the land of the planter class who led the Southern states into rebellion should be expropriated and distributed to the freed people of the South and that poor, loyal whites, as well as black families should be 
given land redistribution from the traitorous leaders of the rebellion, and that even if need be, the leadership of the rebellion should be potentially deported or forced out because the health and well-being of a republic of 40 million should not be held hostage by several hundred thousand radicals. And I confess that if Stevens had his way, I, I, I think he would have a hard time getting it. But if Stevens had his way, I think the history of this country would have been better, given what happened, yes. uh, given yes. what happened. Yes. And any any short term pain by the enslaving Confederate loyal class would be smaller than the many, many thousand million fold sufferings of the vast majority of, of black Southerners, as well as as loyal whites uh, who suffered during the so-called redemption years and then Jim Crow. But what you also mentioned, child was more of a, maybe not pacifist, but certainly, you know, coercion was not generally in her preferred Mm. toolkit. So I don't know. What did she think about what should happen after the Civil War? Yeah, everything you just said with the slight, I, I don't remember her saying anything specific about deporting the Mm -hmm. Confederate leaders. Um, but absolutely, she thought the land should be redistributed to mm. formerly enslaved people and loyal white people. And she was crushed when that became when it became clear that there was no way that was going to happen. And she wrote very eloquently about the way black people who had started to farm some of those territories. Um, oh, were, yeah. On the South Carolina and Georgia seacoasts. Exactly. Uh, yeah, where their land was taken back from them and they had to. Right. Which yeah. And she absolutely identified that as a travesty. But in addition to that, it wasn't just a travesty. It was also that I think she also agreed that the only way to get newly emancipated Americans on any kind of legal footing was to allow them to have land right. and to make sure that the landed aristocracy never got a foothold. And so when she saw that Andrew Johnson was forgiving Confederates at a, you know such a rapid rate that they could hardly like make it in the door before he would absolve them and send them yes. on their way, um, she was just appalled. And you know, I think the other thing that I'll say about her is that she she did work really hard to try to educate and encourage newly emancipated black Americans. I do not want to imply that her behavior was was always right or good or admirable sure. on that count. She she was definitely an assimilationist insofar mm-hmm. as she thought that the best thing that both black Americans and Native Americans could do was to become as much like white Americans as possible. And she made terrible and unjustifiable promises to black Americans that if they just acted respectably, dressed nicely, talked softly, had clean yards and well-behaved children, white Americans in the South and the North would come to respect them and their prejudice would go away. My suspicion too, in, and I don't know if this is in her defense or it adds the indictment, is that activists, uh, you know, the sort of middle to upper middle class, respectable Yankees like her would have also said, and many white Southerners need to clean up their act too. Um, True. And and so saying she would have said, you need to behave like 
the right kind of white Americans, yeah. <laughs> namely me, Lydia Mariah Child. And so you should probably, uh, you know, I'm sure she was probably a teetotaler and she, you know, and she was probably like all those other things. And so, yes, like it would have a very specific kind of white American. With, um, yes. But your point is nevertheless, like, yeah, well taken. Yes. And just to add to that very briefly, I think that kind of sentiment, but she knew that that was not true in many cases. She knew that black people's respectability just as often infuriated white Americans as it did reduce their prejudice. And she she just added to the immense burdens these people were already facing, that people were literally fighting for their lives with nothing to compensate them for their lifetimes of enslavement. And she was adding to that the burden that they had to be respectable if they were going to get rid of white people's prejudice for them. So I, I really wish she had not said that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I was I was curious because I guess to me also one of the lessons of the failures of Reconstruction is that nonviolence is often a very useful tool, but it is it fails when confronted by murderous hatred uh, yeah. and armed terrorism. And that yes. you know, to one one scholar turned Lincoln's phraseology on his head and he said maybe in Reconstruction what was needed was slightly more malice towards some in the defense <laughs> of justice and that honestly more dead Confederates, more dead Klansmen was in the short term the only in defense of course you know of of human rights was the only way Reconstruction was going to last and that you know mm. that there's an episode um I had a conversation with Shanette Garrett Scott, uh, who was at the time a professor of history at the uh, University of Mississippi. On uh, So the Reconstruction governor of Mississippi, uh, Adelbert Ames, was a Mainer. And so that was our sort of hook mm. in there. And so we talked about Black mm. Reconstruction in Mississippi and how it succumbed to violent uh, white supremacist Confederate revanchism in 1875. Mm. And the sort of the ways in which Black Mississippians and their white allies tried to build this post-war government based on some semblance of equality and how it was violently overthrown. And I recommend that episode to all who haven't listened to it yet. But, you know, so that anyway, so that kind of shows these, yeah, the limitations of pure respectability and and all the rest in the face uh, or or just goodwill in the face of some forms of, of hatred and violence. Which is, you know, I, you know, I think it's it's difficult for many people to to, to grapple with. It's not a absolutely. The, the other book that I'd recommend on that topic is is a book called Force and Freedom by Kelly Carter Jackson, which is a wonderful and sobering corrective to the narrative that even black abolitionists primarily thought that respectability would save them. In fact, mm. many of them were very clear that force certainly in self-defense and maybe beyond that was the only way that uh, slavery would end and that the only way that racial terrorism could be combated. Yeah. I was struck by Frederick Douglass uh, when uh, he was invited by John Brown to the raid on Harper's Ferry, the, the famous attack by Brown and many of his sons, but also some other uh, black and white accomplices to essentially take over a federal military installation and then pass out the weapons to the surrounding 
uh, enslaved population in what's now West Virginia. And it was not a very well thought out plan, which is why Douglas did not participate in it because he knew it was suicide. But what I learned, I believe James Oakes, uh, he wrote like a sort of double biography of Douglas and Lincoln as sort of anti-slavery political figures. And one of the things he talks about in this book is how Douglas was deeply conflicted and he felt terrible. He felt really guilty that he did not join Brown because here was, here was this white radical abolitionist willing to go to the mat and sacrifice his life. And in a campaign Douglas just believed was futile and yet noble. And so the fact that he didn't participate really ate him up inside for a considerable amount of time. And it influenced his, he was very, he was very deeply uh, down in 1860 and early 1861, in part because of his own, from his perspective, failure to participate in this and unwillingness. Yeah, and I, I won't go into this now because it's a long story, but it's a fantastic story how Lydia Mariah Child got involved after the John Brown raid. It was one of her her best moments. She absolutely met the moment. She turned some correspondence into what was the nineteenth century nineteenth century equivalent of going viral. Um, mm. So she was all, also someone who was deeply ambivalent about what Brown had done. But she used the moment to broadcast the arguments she'd been making for decades to a much wider audience than she'd been able to reach so far. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories about her. So I encourage everyone to read that chapter of the book. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of that book, could we get the uh, the reminder again? What is the title of your book so that everybody can find it wherever fine books are sold, uh, besides Amazon, of course? Uh, And of course, order it for their libraries. Yes. Uh, So it's called Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. We will, of course, be linking to that book uh, on all of our social media feeds. The last question I have for you, which I have for everybody. So besides, of course, your own excellent work. What is a book or some other production that you think that our audience should check out if they're if they're interested in, in the things that you are? Luckily for me, there is a very clear answer to that right now, because Carrie Greenidge has just published a group biography of the Grimke family. It's Ooh. called the Grimkeys. Okay. And the Grimkeys were uh, allies. The, the Grimke sisters were allies of child in the abolitionist movement. Um, but they also had nephews who were mixed race. And this is the story of how that happened and what happened to that family. And it's scathing, it's stimulating, it's convicting. It's a shocking story, but unfortunately, it's not surprising. So I I highly recommend that in general, but also as a kind of um, I won't quite say corrective to my own book, but it is a very sobering look at the sides of the abolitionist movement that were and continue to be harmful for Black Americans. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. We will link to that as well in our uh, social media follow-ups to this episode. Lydia Moland, thank you so much for sharing your insights. And I believe you are the first professional philosopher who has graced the show with uh, their intellectual presence. 
Uh, I hope uh, that you will not be the last and that this will not be the last time. Thank you. It's been an honor to speak with you. Thanks for a wonderful conversation. That's our show. Share us with your friends as a holiday gift. Sometimes the best things in life really are free. Join us soon as we wrap up 2022, discussing a beloved main cultural icon and her latest contribution to the pantheon of Christmas movies. That's next time on Mainly History.